weeks ago I was reading a book by John Wooden, legendary UCLA basketball coach. Wooden famously believed that success should be defined and found in effort and in improvement and in process, not in results. And near the beginning of this book, he was describing how he learned that version of success. He learned it from his father. Wooden's father was apparently a, a remarkable figure. Um, despite some really devastating experiences as an adult, he buried two young daughters. Uh, he lost a farm during the Depression. Um, but despite all of that, he managed to maintain a healthy relationship with his wife his whole life. He fashioned a successful career as an educator, and he raised four sons who all became teachers. Wooden describes his dad as something like the strong, silent type, right? He says his dad could play a whole game of checkers or chess and not say a word. And because of that, because of that bearing and personality, when he spoke, Coach Wooden says, people paid attention because what he said was simple and wise. It was practical but profound. And that made his children especially keen to listen to him. Maybe you've had this kind of experience before where you're enjoying what you're doing in a way that your brain kind of switches back to some, just briefly, to some older, outgrown mindset or worldview. I did that, apparently, while I was reading Coach Wooden praise his dad, and I was thinking, yeah, I want to be that kind of dad. I want to be the kind of dad who is solid and gentle and a real source of comfort and confidence for my kids. And then I sort of came back to myself. I'm 41. My kids are half grown. They're teens and tweens. And I am not that kind of dad. I'm not the strong, silent type. I talk all the time. I never leave them alone. My kids don't wait on, like, nuggets of insight and wisdom from me. They mostly try to avoid me, like I'm going to spontaneously start lecturing about the, like, right path for mowing the grass. When they do break down and ask me a question, it is almost always prefaced. Dad, can you give me the short version of... And I can't. I can't give them the short version. No, I, I, while they're stuck in the G-force of my dadsplanation, I just see their faces melt, right? Horror, annoyance, resignation, like I am a pile of laundry that has started talking to them. I'm not that kind of dad. I think that my friend... My good friend, my pastor, Brent Swanson, has recognized this about me. I think he knows that I can't be alone, that I never shut up, that I'm always looking for some book or podcast or conversation or project. And Brent assigned me the topic of silence and solitude because he wants me to become more aware of these concepts. Maybe you know what that's like, or probably this resonates with you just a little bit. That the world is loud and it is a lot. 
that your experience of it is just unprepared hurry morning to night or that the constant inner narrative in your head is exhausting and maybe even deflating maybe you crave some quiet assurance that God is present in your life and in the world we're doing a sermon series right now on rhythms on spiritual disciplines and this morning we are going to talk about incorporating a rhythm solitude and silence into our living of these days as a vital part of our faith and our witness. Now, let's do some really quick definitions. Make sure we're all on the same page. In her book, The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, Adele Alberg Calhoun describes solitude as uninterrupted time in a distraction-free environment. How often do you get that? uninterrupted time in a distraction-free environment. Well, we'll go on. She calls solitude a container discipline that allows time and space for practices like observing Sabbath, reading scripture, praying, journaling, and maintaining silence. Calhoun defines silence as an intentional practice of attending and listening to God in quiet, without interruption, and noise. Silence provides freedom from speaking as well as from listening. Not just to words, but to music. And so this broad definition allows for an inclusion of a whole range of silent activities, from really basic breathing exercises to more focused meditative and contemplative exercises. And I think that this morning we should just say yes to all of that and consider silence in this really inclusive way, okay? Without being too specific, we're not going to get into specifics about how to practice solitude and silence this morning. What we're gonna talk about is why we should practice solitude and silence. I also wanna address the resistance that I imagine some of us have to this topic. Those of us who grew up in the church belt or whose you know, spirituality was really shaped in evangelical culture, we might be kind of skeptical of at least the vocabulary, if not the concepts of solitude and silence. Words like meditation or contemplation, which you hear a lot uh, in connection with these practices, they may sound vaguely foreign, new agey, or even specifically Buddhist. It's okay, it's understandable to have that reaction to them. But we need to recognize that followers of Jesus have made these sorts of activities a vital part of faith and witness since our beginning. Solitude and silence, meditation and contemplation are part of our history and our heritage that we really should embrace and explore. Of course, the scriptures are full of affirmations of solitude and silence, right? Our passage from 1 Kings is a particularly good example. Psalm 46, the voice of the Lord calls out to all the earth, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 62 begins, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And the Gospels, of course, are full of examples of Jesus going out or withdrawing to, as Luke 
says, the lonely places. The pray. Practices of solitude and silence have always taught us how God is with us, which is, of course, the point of doing them. The point of spending time in solitude and silence is to grow in awareness of God's presence in our lives and in the world, and to enjoy that presence as gift and blessing, as a source of strength and encouragement for our lives in the world. The reason that scripture and our tradition value these practices is that they can teach us to know and delight in God's real presence among us. This text this morning offers a really fascinating look at solitude and silence. Elijah, alone in a cave on a didn't find God in the destructive forces in the world, but in, as the King James and the old RSV say, a still small voice in a low whisper, as Jeff read from the ESV. A lot of other translations pick up on something else at the end of that phrase. The idea that Elijah didn't really hear a quiet voice, but rather sensed a bracing presence. The NRSV renders it after the wind and the earthquake and the fire came the sound of sheer silence. I love that phrase. Before we dive in, I want to get just a little bit of context for what's going on in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is in this cave on a mountain because he is hiding from the Israelite rulers. Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel had abandoned the worship of Yahweh and instead promoted a Canaanite god, Baal. Ahab staged a contest between Elijah, the last remaining prophet of Yahweh, and 450 prophets of Baal, where Elijah demonstrated the Lord's power. And the 450 prophets of Baal failed. Elijah then, shockingly, kills these rival prophets and now Jezebel has promised to kill Elijah. And so he is on the run. Elijah hid first in the wilderness where an angel fed him and nourished him under the shade of a broom tree, Scripture says. The angel then sent Elijah on a 40-day wilderness journey to Horeb, or Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, which is where this passage begins. What I think we see in this scripture is that in solitude and silence, Elijah found protection from the world, perspective on the world, and preparation for the world. Solitude and silence enabled Elijah's ministry by protecting him, giving him a new perspective, and preparing him for what was next. I think solitude and silence can empower and energize us similar ways. And as we'll see, these three experiences, protection, new perspective, and preparation, resonate deeply with how God is with us. Protection from the world, perspective on the world, preparation for the world. Let's look first at protection. Solitude and silence clearly provided Elijah protection in two important ways. First, in the, in the passage immediately before uh, what Jeff read, he rested under the broom tree and then traveled through the wilderness and then, as 
we see, waited on the mountain. While he did all of that, Elijah was safe from Jezebel and Ahab. Secondly, this mountain cave protected Elijah from these crazy storms, wind, earthquake, fire. In solitude and silence, Elijah escaped the danger and destruction that he encountered in the world. He's protected from it. Solitude and silence can do that for us, too. They can protect us from the world. I would really love to go on a grouchy rant here about how ridiculously complicated our modern lives are. These always-on, always-connected devices elevate chance and contingency and completely random things to the status of immediacy and urgency because they happen to be in your hand on the screen. Right? I'm not going to do that, though. I'm not going to gripe. I'm sort of afraid that one over there is going to okay boomer me. No, I think that kind of griping misses the mark. While we experience the alerts and the notifications and the updates of the modern world as unique features of our time, they're not. Interruption and distraction are not new. Check this guy out. Hugo Gernsback was so frustrated by the distractions and headaches and interruptions of the modern office that he invented this thing, the isolator, a hundred years ago. It's basically a sensory deprivation helmet with eye holes and a snorkel. It's ridiculous. It looks like the sort of thing that like Jim Halpert would have tried to get the white shrew to wear in the office, right? Interruption and distraction and noise aren't just new modern problems. We may experience them in ways that are mechanized or electrified or networked that are novel or new, but the sights and sounds and cares and concerns of the world have long made us want to hide our heads in a helmet. Solitude and silence are ancient wisdom helping us deal with a world that can wear us down and overwhelm us. A regular rhythm of solitude and silence protects us from the world. This rhythm also gives us perspective on the world. The scripture illustrates this new perspective in a really interesting way. Here Elijah is in a cave on Mount Sinai, and from that spot he can apparently see a crazy show right? Windstorm, earthquake, fire, these powerful, destructive, literally earth-shaking things are going on all around him. And not only is he protected from them, he is able to see them so well that he can discern God is not in them. Solitude and silence give him a new perspective on Additionally, they allow him time to gain a new perspective on himself. God asks Elijah twice while he's in the cave, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? And twice he has to articulate why he's come. In solitude and silence, Elijah comprehends and confidently asserts what he is about. Solitude and silence can do that for us too. When we are protected from all of the stuff that life throws at us, when we give ourselves the time and space to see all of it a bit more clearly, we can grow in awareness and understanding of both the world and ourselves. We get a better perspective on what's going on around us and how we fit into it. Solitude and silence can allow us time and space for discerning what is involved in or what is at stake in the chances and changes that we encounter. I think that's particularly true for how we see and understand ourselves. One of the reasons that personality assessments like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram have become so popular in the last several years is that folks are learning how helpfully they frame our understanding of our patterns of thinking and behaving and of the mindsets and assumptions and expectations and fears that create those. These are tools that offer us real insight into ourselves, but I think it also takes the vantage point of silence and solitude to see it well. Solitude and silence give us the opportunity to contemplate the ways we see and respond to the things around us, and dwelling in them allows us to gain a fresh perspective on our lives and on the world. So solitude and silence protect us. They give us a new perspective. The third thing these practices do is prepare us. They prepare us for the world. Preparation can mean lots of things. For Elijah, it meant, fairly simply, receiving God's direct instruction. As we read, he's supposed to leave the cave and anoint Hazael, a new Aramean king in Damascus, he is supposed to anoint Jehu as the new Israelite king to rule in place of Jezebel and Ahab, and he is supposed to anoint Elisha as the Lord's new prophet in Elijah's place. So in solitude and silence, the Lord prepared Elijah for what was going to come next. There are lots of ways to prepare. Athletes prepare for competition by doing a lot of repetitive practice, specific skills and movements. Volleyball players serve, dig, pass, set, hit. Runners practice distances and paces. Solitude and silence is something like that for us, sort of. The more we spend, the more time we spend in solitude and silence, the more comfortable we are with them and the easier it is for us to settle into them. But there's an additional, I think, deeper component to preparation that God offers us in solitude and silence. Repetitive practice allows a volleyball player to hone her skills, but it doesn't teach her how to execute those skills when the game is on the line. Repetitive practice alone can't teach that player how to coordinate timing and spacing and rhythm in a loud and pressurized environment or how to act with the calm focus and the poise necessary for a big moment. You have to change the context to learn those kinds of things. 
That's the kind of preparation God has for us in solitude and silence. By getting us out of the noise and providing a new perspective, solitude and silence, silence prepare us for the big moments in our days when the game is on the line, when acting with love and joy patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control is hard but necessary. When doing those things is what it means to serve, dig, task, set, hit. To gain courage and confidence and strength for our living of these days when we practice waiting in silence and solitude and we learn gratitude trust when we wait there too. Dallas Willard says that in solitude and silence we learn that we have a soul, that God is here, and that this world is my father's world. Letting the dynamics, those facts, and that relationship soak into us prepares us to live out the fruits of the Spirit. In solitude and silence, Elijah experienced protection from the world, a new perspective on the world, and preparation for the world. The rhythm of solitude and silence offers these to us as well. And when we experience them, protection, new perspective, preparation, we grow in our awareness and our enjoyment about the present. We need to add something to it. Because we don't just grow in awareness and enjoyment in a generic way. It's a really specific kind of presence. Since very early in the life of the church, Christians have understood that scripture and the pattern of disciple, that God is Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. And I want you to consider this morning protector, perspective changer, and preparer. Our time in solitude and silence connects us with this three-part reality of God. God the Father protects us by gathering, by drawing in, by welcoming, and by making home for us, even in a cave. Our time in solitude allows God the Son to change our perspective with a parable, with baskets and tables of plenty, and with a power that transforms life and death and resurrection. Paul says that we should have, that we should put on the mind of Christ, essentially, that we should change our perspective or allow our perspective to be changed by letting the same mind be in us that was in Jesus. And God the Spirit prepares us to live out of this protection and this new perspective in a way that, as Brent told us last week, is distinct and engaged. The Spirit empowers us to live as fruit, as a harvest of gift and blessing for the people around us. Something like what Thomas Merton describes in this line that's printed in your bulletin, maybe up here. In deep solitude and silence, I find the gentleness to truly love my brother and sister. God the Spirit prepares us to be family for each other and for our neighbors. The rhythm of solitude and silence allows us to grow.
and our awareness and enjoyment of God's presence in the world and to experience that presence as protection, as perspective, and as preparation. And so very quickly, a few points of application to help us incorporate a rhythm of solitude and silence. Number one, turn off your phone. When my dad first got a mobile phone, we never could reach him on it because it was always off. Most folks end a call, dad would end a call and power the phone off. When he needed to use it again, power it back up, do what he needed to do, and turn it back off. We teased him mercilessly about this, but even as we did, we recognized the sort of stubborn or cantankerous wisdom that's involved in it, right? I'm not suggesting that we've got to treat our phones that way. There are all sorts of really great reasons to have these things on most of the time and on us most of the time. But they really do distract us. They really do interrupt us. They really do form and shape us in ways that are unhelpful and harmful. Brent talked about this a few weeks ago when he introduced this rhythm series. Let's turn off our phones and put them away just every once in a while, periodically. If we develop a habit of doing that, it is definitely going to help us cultivate practices of solitude and silence. Number two, get outside. I sound like a salesman for the, the outdoor industry. Get outside. Walk. Sit. Garden. Run. Hike. Ride. Camp. Kayak. Fish. Swim. Skip rocks. Rake your neighbor's leaves, cut their weeds, sketch, build something, take a nap, get outside. It's easy to say and it's a lot harder to do when the days are cold and gray and wet and the dark comes early in the evening. Now, it's about to be 70 degrees out there and the sun's shining, so enjoy that today. The more distance we put between our hearts and our minds and our bodies and the inside voices that call to us, the better able we are, the better we are able to hear God calling us to solitude and silence. Three, grab the moments that are available to you. If adding one more thing to your schedule seems impossible, or if you're uncomfortable right now with some intentional solitude and silence, start simply. Grab whatever moments you have to yourself. While you're exercising, while you're showering, while you're driving to work or running an errand, while you're walking anywhere. Somebody told me after the first service that, they, that the moment they get, the, the, the quiet they get, is the two minutes that they spend brushing their teeth. Grab those two minutes and recognize them for the solitude and silence they provide. And maybe, if you're able to, now if you've got the brush going, maybe not, but if you're able to, pay attention to your breath. Every source, I told you we weren't going to get into specifics, but every single source for wisdom and instruction and solitude and silence includes paying attention to your breathing. Breathe deeply. Pay attention to the in and the out of it. Pay attention to the gift of it. 
go deeper. If you're curious about these practices, if you think God is calling you to them, go deeper. The fellowship newsletter includes some really good book recommendations to go along with this rhythm series. I'm going to presume right now to add something to it. There are a lot of really great resources on incorporating rhythms of solitude and silence into your hours and days. Ruth Haley Barton's book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, was a Christianity Today book of the year about 10 years ago. It is a fantastic and simple introduction to these practices. It is also a brilliant reading of uh, 1 Kings 19. Number five, always, always. Mercy, grace, gift, and blessing. The point of spending time in solitude and silence is to grow in our awareness and our enjoyment of God's presence. The point is not perfect solitude and silence. The point is not perfection in solitude and silence. The point is not checking something off on our spiritual to-do list. We may experience real transformation as we stumble into these practices, but we're not transformed for them. God's mercy, God's grace, God's gift, God's blessing is with you and in you right now. All of it was and is and will be. We may get to know the presence of God more deeply in solitude and silence, but we do not earn it or experience it exclusively there. God already and always surrounds you and holds you. In solitude and silence, God protects us from the world, gives us a new perspective on the world, and prepares us for the world. May God help us to incorporate rhythms of solitude and silence into our living these days. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you for the witness of Elijah's experience in the wilderness and on your mountain. We know that you are not in the destructive forces of our world. We trust that your presence is made known in the power to give life even in death. Protect us. Give us new perspectives. Prepare us for what's next. Help us to grow in awareness and enjoyment of all your mercies and graces and gifts and blessings. Help us to grow in our awareness of your presence in our lives and throughout your